0: pages of the bible we thank you that there we find everything that we need uh, for life and for godliness that in those pages we meet the lord jesus so that we might be able to uh, turn our hearts to you and put our trust in him we pray that as your word is uh, read to us and as uh, andrew teaches it to, uh, it to us in just a moment that you'll be working in us by your spirit uh, so that we might learn from you hear from you have our hearts changed by you we pray these things in jesus name amen thanks ben
1: The first reading uh, comes from uh, Proverbs chapter 9, I'm reading verses 7 to 18, uh, that's on page 516 if you want to follow along in the Bibles and the pews, that's uh, Proverbs chapter 9 starting at verse 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer wins abuse, whoever rebukes the wicked gets hurt. A scoffer who is rebuked will only hate you, the wise when rebuked will love you. Give instruction to the wise, and they will become wiser still. Teach the righteous, and they will gain in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The foolish woman is loud. She is ignorant and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the high places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight who are going straight on their way. You ask, who are simple, turn in here. And to those without sense she says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But they do not know that the dead are there. That her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Uh, The next reading comes from uh, Matthew 18. I'm reading verses 15 to 35. And that's on page 799, the Bible's in the pews. That's Matthew 18, starting at verse 15. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence or to, of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth, will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I truly tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, seventy-seven times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. But he refused, and he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they they went and reported to their lord all that had taken place. Then his lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? and in anger his lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt so my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart
0: Last week uh, we began, as Richard mentioned, our journey in uh, what we've called the habits of community, beginning with the surprising centrality of hospitality. We saw uh, the key role that hospitality plays, uh, opening up your space, your your home, uh, or perhaps extending the notion of hospitality, uh, your friendship group or your time, your diary, your calendar, uh, opening up your space to others which turns out to be a really good proxy for opening up yourself to others in general, to welcome them in the same way that God in Christ has welcomed you. And we noted that one of the fundamental drivers of hospitality is a stance of gratitude. Um, Without the stance of gratitude, it's very easy to kind of approach life as a needy person and, and therefore just constantly looking inward and downward and grabbing But if the most basic reality of your life is that you are abundantly, utterly, graciously blessed, it means the starting point in any interaction or moment is from fullness, not from deficit, so that you echo a generosity to others that reflects the generosity that God has shown to you. And that's a pretty positive angle on community, hospitality. It's pretty easy uh, to say yes to that one. Yes, let's be a more hospitable community. Yes. And I guess it's, you know, worth just keeping on, making sure that we don't come here week by week and hear the uh, word of God read and taught and go away and do nothing about it. Um, Don't be hearers of the word only, James says, be doers of the word. And so whether, you know, how'd you go? Did you take any steps this week to just, you know, kind of stretch yourself a little bit in hospitality? Today, however, we move to the dark side. Uh, Or at least that's what I suspect uh, many of us feel about the whole question of conflict. Conflict has a bad name. And for good reason. Uh, Damages, both large and small, both temporary and permanent, come through conflict to friendships and families and communities. And yet, more rarely, but equally truly, Conflict done well, conflict handled healthily, can be one of the most powerful and connecting and hopeful of all human experiences. And not surprisingly, Jesus is profoundly aware of both the destructive as well as the restorative powers of conflict. And so he teaches his people how to avoid this one, the destructive, and how to major In this one, the restorative. We're going to break down his uh, word to us uh, under three headings. You'll see there the necessity for healthy conflict, the pattern in healthy conflict, and the power for healthy conflict. Um, It's a pretty interesting topic. There's all sorts of things to say. Uh, We're going to have a question time uh, at the end, an opportunity just to kind of think together a little bit and make sure that we've covered all the different angles and bases uh, that we have time tonight. Um, and um, I'm also going to focus on just the one verse at the start of our reading, and then the parable at the end, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. There's lots of interesting stuff in verses 16 on there, aren't there? But if you get 18:15 right, then you don't need to go to 16. Okay, so let's just work really hard at getting 18:15 right. And uh, if you if you really need to, you know, feel the need, we can talk about 16 and on uh, in the question time. But uh, I'm I, I think we've got enough of a trouble. Uh, enough of a job working on just verse 15. So that's where we're going to stick tonight. Okay, first then, the necessity for healthy conflict. Uh, the first word in Matthew 18:15 is if, if another member of the church sins against you. But one commentator suggested that it would be far better translated when. When, when another member of the church sins against you. Right there, you see, is the inevitability of conflict. And it arises from two facts. First, we are all different. And second, we are all difficult. So first, difference. Uh, it takes no genius to recognise that the differences between people are virtually infinite, ranging from tiny preferences to entire worldviews, from little personality quirks to fundamental approach to life. And in fact, the, the differences that there are between us are a really big part of what makes the world and each other so potentially rich and interesting. It's the differences that really add flavor and texture to life. And what that means is that one way to put the challenge of community, in fact, is in terms of the capacity to be connected to people at the same time as being different from them. And uh, if you want to want to mull on something tonight, you want to say, wow, that was really deep and... That's a really important insight. I'm going to think about that for a little while. That's the one right there. Pretty much everything that goes wrong relationally in your life. I'm just, I'm just putting this out there. Pretty much everything that goes wrong relationally in your life is because of an inability to stay connected where there's a difference. And it's worth just uh, putting that one in your pocket and, and reflecting on that. Is, is that how it goes with my friends, with my family? Any time there's a problem, in the end it's going to be because there's a difference, a difference in desire or a difference in preference or a difference in attitude that I'm finding difficult to handle. The challenge of community is being connected and close to people at the same time as being different from them. Uh, We recognise just how artificial community is when it's based on and insists on sameness. I mean, think about it from the other side of things. Uh, whether that's the same skin colour, whether that's the same political views, whether that's the same wealth level. If if, if that's what community is, well, that's not community at all. Community by sameness is just prejudice. Uh, In the end, what I'm suggesting here is that the, the the differences that come out of the fact that we are all different, the conflicts that arise from the inevitable and in themselves often neutral differences between people, that conflict is itself neutral. Uh, I I take it that there may be all kinds of conflicts in glory. What God is doing to us is not all turning us into the same person. We'll still be different. In fact, our differences will be magnificently different in glory. And there'll be moments when they bump into each other. And that's okay then. What makes difference destructive is the fact that we are all also difficult. Now, difficult, of course, is just a euphemism. I I used it because it's got a nice kind of alliteration, but it's just a soft way of actually saying that we are all really, really deeply broken, dysfunctional, selfish and sinning people. Some in this room are marginally less so than others. I guess. But one of the great gifts of the gospel is to enable us to stop pretending about ourselves. My sin is as real and as bad as the cross of Christ. It's just that simple and that's not some kind of abstract in the mind of God hypothetical kind of thing. That's an hour-by-hour, week-by-week, conversation-by-conversation, relationship-by-relationship kind of thing. Uh, We have a word for it, this difficulty that we all have. It's it's called pride or what you might call selfness. Selfness, self-pleasing, self-comfort, self-convenience, self-control. Not in the good sense of self as in I want control of other people. My needs have priority over anyone else's. And and you can see how when that's the case, that selfness of pride in hundreds and hundreds of little ways, it eats away at community like an acid. Uh, This sort of selfness uh, means that you're more aware of the faults of others than you are of your own. Other people are late and slack. You're understandably delayed by traffic. The alternative to selfness, spiritual humility, actually makes you far more aware of your own faults than you are of others. This kind of selfness leads you, when you speak of others' faults, to have an air of contempt or disdain Or cynicism. You're either cold to them or you avoid them. But spiritual humility means that you stick with people. Even through difficult relationships. You don't give up on them. You don't separate out from them. You're not, in that sense, a Pharisee. That's what Pharisees meant. To separate. Um, A a self-person is dogmatic and sure about everything they think. They can't distinguish between the major and the minor so that they major on the major and minor on the minor. No, no, everything's major. And the reason everything's major is because it's not really about truth, it's about them. Selfness people can't stand to be contradicted. Too Much is at stake. They're always at stake. But spiritual humility understands the important things, importance of things and is very happy to let little things be little things. And those that are never at stake anymore. Uh, the person who's full of selfness either loves to confront because they like winning or refuses to front, uh, confront because they can't cope with controversy. But but the spiritually humble person confronts when it's necessary, not because they love it, not avoiding it because they hate it, but with a deep gentleness. A person who's wrapped up in selfness is often unhappy and self-piteous, actually. They know how life ought to go. They're sure that they deserve a good life. In fact, they almost certainly deserve a better life than they're getting right now. And people should treat them that way. But spiritually humble people know that everything they have, they have by grace, by pure gift and mercy. They get that they don't even really have the wisdom to say what's best for them. And so they trust God. Do you see the significance of this difficulty, if I can stay with my euphemism? We're called to a humility where we're more aware of our own faults than others, where we're slow to speak of others' faults, and when we do, we speak of them gently and respectfully, that sticks with people through hard relationships and difficulties, that are flexible and agile rather than dogmatic and brittle, that are not afraid of confronting but don't love it either. And when they do, they're very persuasive because they're not out to win, they're out to heal. we call to a spiritual humility that means that we have almost no self-pity, not grumbling and complaining, just serving in contentment. Notice, by the way, that this selfness can take the form of arrogance. There's plenty of that around. But equally, and we saw this a few weeks ago, equally it can take the form of self-denigration, feeling self-conscious and feeling like a failure all the time. What, 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 what does that, those two things, which seem like they're opposites, right? What do they have in common? Well, actually, what they have in common is it's all about me. What they have in common is selfness how I'm coming across, how I'm feeling, how things should be better for me. And that that form of selfness kills community every bit as much as arrogance does. Why do we need healthy conflict? Because we're going to have conflict whatever happens, because we're different. And what turns difference into pain is the fact that we all have this kind of bowling ball bent to us this selfness which leads into to the second point all right how do we deal with conflict in a healthy way what might healthy conflict be that builds community well jesus is pretty clear there's uh, three main steps in what he says initiating conducting and the purpose of healthy conflict uh, notice, uh, firstly, then, initiating uh, healthy conflict. When differences become difficult, the first step is for you to take responsibility for fixing things up. Uh, it's not translated the way that the, you know, English works, uh, but actually the first word here is you. If someone, when someone in the church sins against you, you, you go to them. It's interesting here that Jesus lays the responsibility for making conflict healthy, at the door of the person who is sinned against, who's wronged, who's feeling hurt. Because after all, you can at least be pretty sure that they get that something's gone wrong. But it's also, and importantly true to say, that on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus puts the shoe on the other foot and says to the person who has done the wrongdoing, who's done the sinning, to leave their gift at the altar and to go first and sort things out. In other words, who's responsible for going first to sort things out? Is it the person who's sinned against or is it the person who's sinned? And Jesus' answer is yes. Yes. Because he knows that we're all highly self-justifying, stubborn and ornery kind of creatures who have a surplus of relational weapons and a deficit of peacemaking in our hearts. And he just says, someone get this thing going. Get it going. Now note, there is a legitimate alternative to going to the person, just by the way. It's very important to see this. kind of, we're, we're narrowing the range here a little bit. Um, you see, there are some things where the appropriate response is what the Bible calls forbearance. Forbearance is when a wrong is sufficiently small, that, and uh, to use a cricketing term, I don't know if you're into a cricketing term, that you can just let it go through to the keeper straight past the bat, shoulder arms, you know, let it go through to the keeper without doing anything about it. You just let it go past. The litmus test of forbearance is that you're able to resume full fellowship the way it was before the wrong so that nothing has changed. You're not more awkward, you're not more jittery or angry around the other person than you were before. That's what real forbearance is. And I say that because there's all the difference in the world between forbearance and avoidance. Avoidance, which is massively embedded in our culture. Just avoid. Avoidance is when you don't do something and it doesn't go away. And it just hangs there between you. And it's like a little piece of relational grit. And the point is that when you have something like that, that little bit of relational grit right there between you, it, you the only way that you can handle it is to get some distance from the other person. You can't be close to them because the grit will just rub raw, right? And so you back away a little bit. And when you have a collection of people who've been around each other for a number of years and the inevitable conflicts have arisen and they haven't been dealt with in a healthy way, what you've got is hundreds and thousands of these little pieces of relational grit with everyone backed away from everyone else. And the one thing that collection of people will never be, will never be, is a community. And Jesus is into relational hygiene. You've got to clear your grit away. Now, if you can just let it go through and forbear, that's great, that's fantastic. And I suspect almost, I mean, vast numbers of the just little interesting personality quirks and differences that we have, we just kind of go, yep, that's kind of fun. That's what he does. That's what she does. That's all right. No one minds. And that's that's cool. But if the grit's there, if it actually, if it stays, then Jesus says, you go. Now it's worth adding that there are times and places for this when you're in a hot rage, when you're exhausted or crushed, uh, and so not able to sustain a concentrated conversation, those are bad times to go. Okay? So on the one hand, just be a little bit aware of when to go. You know, don't, don't do it when, when it's just going to be a train wreck. Okay? That's on, the one. on the other hand, there will never be a perfect time. You will never get into the perfect state of mind. Uh, you will never get into a perfectly peaceful, calm, and confident place uh, such that it's guaranteed that it will go well. And most of us are such chronic conflict avoiders that we will look for any excuse not to go. Oh, I'm not, I'm not quite ready. I've, just, I've, got to, I've got to pray over it a little bit longer, another three or four decades, and, and then I'll be there. And Jesus says, go. Go. Which leads uh, to the second stage, the conduct of conflict. Uh, Jesus is extremely wise Uh, He says, point out the fault when the two of you are alone. Uh, Notice uh, the two elements of this. There's direct contact and then there's direct content. Direct contact means do it face to face with the other person when the two of you are alone, and that means no third parties. Go directly to the person, which, of course, is the last person that typically we want to go to. In fact, the prospect of going to someone else. The prospect of going to practically anyone else is right at the other end of the spectrum and often entirely delicious. And you know about this, the joy of that little moment of bringing someone else into the conflict. It's called triangulation. Bringing someone else in. Having them agree with you because you've given them the plain objective truth, right? That's given. And they see it entirely in alignment with your vision. They feel the righteous indignation with you. They see the issue with the same clarity you do. And they join you in it. And it's one of the great temptations that erodes communities. And it's a mutual thing, by the way. It's nearly as satisfying being the person spoken to. Trusted. To come on in, trusted to be a co-conspirator, being the one selected to offer confirming words and wise advice. The truth is, if we adopted one single practice on the basis of Jesus' word to us tonight, that when someone comes to us with their conflict with someone else, that what we did was simply to stop them gently in their tracks and say, you know what? go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If we adopted that practice, I would suspect it would make a massive difference. Now, I get it that sometimes we need, um, you know, the opportunity to talk things over to get our heads straight and to figure out how and when and what to say when we go, and that's true as long as the going happens. But most most often, is this not the case? Most often, the triangulating of someone else in is the way that we avoid going. The theory is that talking things out with someone else makes you feel better. Um, But the research says that it doesn't reduce the anger and hurt, it just rehearses it as you get more and more enthusiastic about telling your story. Often enough, it doesn't reduce it at all, it just magnifies it. So the first part of the conduct of conflict is to have the sensitivity and the integrity to go directly to the person rather than via other people. And the second part is to speak directly to them. Direct content. Jesus says, simply point out the fault. There is a straightforward directness about this, which again is in regular contrast with our standard practice. We think that being indirect and roundabout, and if you want to kind of you know, bolster yourself up, you call it being subtle and clever, we think that being indirect will help. Uh, So, for example, you know, contextualise this, imagine this situation in your own sort of uh, context. A person says to their spouse or flatmate or child or parent, would you like to do a really thorough spring clean of the house today? And the spouse or flatmate or parent or child reflects on the state of their heart and discovers that at the deepest level, at the intimate core of his or her true self, actually, no, I really wouldn't like to do a spring clean of the house today. I'd like to read the paper. And proud of their deep self-awareness and transparency, says, thanks, but no thanks. Which, of course, only makes things worse. Because the question was not really a question, was it? The question was not a question, would you like, it was a request. It's just that, and again, this is uh, just one of those really interesting and paradoxical things. Being direct requires a lot more courage because it involves a lot more vulnerability. And so we go indirect. Um, I have a friend who used to say to me when he had uh, a problem, he said, Andrew, I've got a bone to pick with you. Which is perhaps um, a little on the sort of brutal side of direct, uh, but it, it was far better than being merely-mouthed. And then he'd tell me what was the problem. Uh, I've been taught uh, you don't have to go to many counseling sessions uh, to get taught this. It's pretty much counseling you know, session one or two. And I've been to many more than that. Um, I've been taught to say something very simple, uh, more along the lines of what I observed, The behavior, how I experienced it, what I felt, what the consequences for me are, and what I'd like to change. Here's the paradox, right? The way to be most vulnerable, the way to be least selfish, the way to be most open and actually kind is to talk mostly about yourself. It's just one of those really interesting paradoxes. The more you say about yourself, the more vulnerable you're making yourself. And by by the way, I don't mean, I feel like you're a real jerk. That's just talking about them, but sort of introducing it with a sentence that starts with I in a sneaky and actually not very helpful way. No, no, talk about yourself. Point out the fault by saying your experience of it. And if you do that, it's direct, it's powerful, And particularly if you have the third element in place, which is the purpose of healthy conflict. See, the problem is that there can be all sorts of actual reasons uh, that we do this sort of thing. It's surprisingly easy to want to hurt the other person back as much as they've hurt you. And you've really got to just be aware of what's happening in your heart, actually. Jesus is very clear. Your purpose is not to hurt the other person. Your purpose is not to score points over the other person. Your purpose is not even just at a very basic level to win. No, your purpose must be to regain that one, as Jesus puts it. In other words, reconciliation. And everything hangs on this. A couple of weeks ago, I was out uh, cycling around the Bay Run. Uh, It was a Sunday afternoon, and Sunday afternoon on a warm, sunny day, Uh, around the Bay Run means that there are several hundred thousand uh, joggers of all shapes, sizes and ages, and most of them with prams, both on the footpath and on the bike lane next to it. They they, they just, they see bike lane and they think, no, footpath. (laughs) So there's just one chockers footpath and one chockers bike lane. And so I made a decision, I made a decision to ride on the road. Now it's a really smooth road. It's a great road to ride on, very flat bitumen, uh, and you can go much faster, and it's much more fun to ride on the road. And no doubt that played a small, tiny part in my decision, but there was at least some concern also for the safety of those several hundred thousand walkers who otherwise would have been in my way on the bike lane. But the driver in the SUV behind me (laughs) didn't see it like that. He came racing up behind me, tailgating me, if that's what you can do to a bike. And then he overtook me at pace, after which he slowed right down to my actually quite fast speed, if I can put it. uh... (laughs) The passenger wound down his window, (laughs) stuck his head out, and let me know exactly what he thought about me occupying the road instead of the bike path. He, as they say, flipped me the bird. He selected some juicy Australian insults laced with some even more juicy profanity and then he drove off in disgust. Now, here's the thing. Notice how well he did according to Jesus. (laughs) Notice how well he did according to Jesus. He got nearly everything right. Did he acknowledge our conflict? Yes, we had a difference between us. His preference was for me to be on the bike path. My preference was for me. We had a difference. He acknowledged it with clarity and passion. And what's more, he took initiative without waiting. He was not passive. He didn't avoid the conflict. He did not complain about it to other motorists. He came directly to me. He didn't stop to whinge to the joggers on the path and he spoke to me directly in content as well. I knew exactly what he was thinking and feeling. He got it all right, except for the last bit, which is the most important bit. He was not even in the same galaxy as reconciliation. He was just blurting. And the truth is, if that's not your purpose, if that's not your purpose, you're almost certainly not ready to do the prior steps. And in fact, and I, want to, I want to say this kind of gently, but, but actually fiercely as well. If it's not your purpose, there's something significantly amiss in your own heart. In fact, it may well be that what's wrong in your heart is greater than the wrong that was done to you. Do you see that? It may even be that the wrong, in your heart, as what you want is not to regain the person, is actually greater than the wrong that was done to you. And you need to do some pretty important spiritual work, which leads to our final point, the power for healthy conflict, because where are we going to get the spiritual strength to do this? Uh, Jesus tells us a parable. Actually, that's the point of the parable. The point of the parable is that if you get the parable, then you'll be able to do what he says. And this is perhaps Jesus' most interpretable parable. Most parables of Jesus, they're confusing. It's not quite necessarily clear what he's saying. This parable has got almost nothing unclear about it. It is magnificently pointed. It holds a mirror up to our own hearts. The wrong of that first servant who's just been forgiven the, 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 um, the amount that Jesus puts 10,000 talents uh, is estimated by scholars to be the sum total of money in circulation in the entire world at that time. Jesus picks literally the biggest number that there is. He's just been forgiven. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't work, right? How come one king has all the money in the world? Well, there it is. He, the king forgives him, just writes it off, no problem. 10,000 talents. And then he goes out to, and he's on his way out. I mean, did you notice it? It's actually, he's just coming down the steps, out of the palace, and he meets a guy who owes him a few thousand dollars. And the the wrong, that the, the, the repulsiveness that we feel for what this servant, this first servant does, and just as the thought kind of starts to form in your own mind, right, it's just, it's about to, you're about to sort of, how could he do that? And of course, It catches us. That's the whole point. Because Jesus, of course, is talking about us any time we don't have the purpose of regaining the other person and reconciliation through forgiveness. He's talking about us. But maybe even more deeply than that, he's talking about himself because he became a servant. He took the form, form of a slave. He was thrown into prison and then he was hoisted on a cross and payment, 10, 000, actually more than 10,000 talents of payment was made on that cross. But of course, he's not paying his own debt. He's paying your debt and my debt our unimaginably, incalculably large debt to the infinite holy God. And you see, that the, the point of the parable is that it's designed to put you in your place where what you can do is do that regaining of the other person because it makes two things really crystal clear when you locate yourself in the parable. On the one hand, it makes crystal clear that you can never stand as a judge over another person. You can never adopt the position of judge, jury, and executioner as you seek vengeance or hurt on the other person. You may have been wronged by them. You may need to go to them and point out their fault. They may, at that moment, be in your debt. That's all true, but it can only ever be a relative debt, and your stance towards them can only ever be a relative stance, that is, of one forgiven debtor to another. You can only ever be alongside another person like that. You can never, ever be over them. You are not qualitatively different from them. So on the one hand, that humbles us. But on the other hand, a second thing is clear, which is that the only judge in my life that truly matters, which is not you, and it's not even me, The only judge in my life that truly matters who is a living and true God has cancelled my debt and has set me free and that brings a freedom to me that nothing can touch and no one can take away and so it fills me. It makes you unbelievably strong and bold, secure and filled. And you see, it's only the gospel of this forgiveness that will do both of those two things to you at the same time. It will humble you and it will lift you up. It means that you'll become a genuinely gentle person and a bold person, unafraid and fearless. It means that you'll have a deep graciousness about you and also a fantastic strength about you and not one at the expense of the other, but both at the same time. You'll be at peace on the inside. And when you're at peace on the inside like that, it means that you can pursue peace on the outside. That's why Jesus tells us the parable. Because if we get the parable, then we'll be able to do healthy conflict. Neither avoiding it, nor provoking it. Just walking in it when it's necessary. All right, let's pause there uh, just for a moment. There's a, a thing I want to wrap up with. Uh, but I'll just, if there are any kind of comments people want to make, or questions, or anything to clarify in what we've said, uh, otherwise I'll, I'll wrap it up. Welcome back, Alex. So the question is about when there's a uh, when. In one sense, this is most easily understood when two people with relatively equal personal power or or sort of relationship uh, um, uh, interact with one another. But when there are power imbalances, when there are differences in power, whether that's uh, financial power or physical power or institutional power, uh, and particularly when that power is being abused, uh, uh, and that's the wrong that's being done, what is what is that? How do we how does this interact with that? I. I think it's a really great question. Remember the, uh, I said some things are too small uh, and that to need the going, and therefore they can just be forbearing. Some things are too big to be handled by Matthew 18, 15, as well. Okay. And so, okay. so no. well, yeah, I think what happens is it escalates. And that's what you see in Matthew 18, 16, right? What, what happens in, in 16 and on is this escalation, which is, I think, an attempt to balance out the power. So by, by going to some others first, just, uh, just a few, and then ultimately by taking it to the whole church, um, what, what that's doing is, is um, balancing out the power imbalance, bringing resources to bear in such a way that there can be um, a, a proper uh, resolution and restitution. Um, and although it's really interesting. Jesus is quite aware that actually it may not work out. You treat the person as a tax collector. Uh, what that means is as not part of the community. And that can be either, I mean, Jesus contemplates it within the life of the church, but I take it, especially in situations uh, where there is uh, violence, um, that is, in other words, what have become offences, not just against the person, but actually criminal offences, that the resources that you bring to bear in those circumstances are the resources of the state. Um, Certainly uh, in our context here, uh, you know, there are certain situations where, I think quite rightly, there's what's called mandatory reporting, and I don't, I, I don't get to make any choices about whether I, we have a nice little friendly conversation. When there's been um, abuse of a child, it just goes straight to the state to bring the power of the state to bear. And so I think Jesus is, a, is aware of that, and actually that's why the escalation process is there in 16 and onwards. Quite what form that takes in our life at the moment, um, it's, it's interesting... The thing that Jesus assumes, I think, in this is that everyone gets that church matters so much that bringing it to the church would be the most astonishingly kind of big thing that, that it's, that's likely to fix everything, right? Whereas, whereas, of course, we live in a different sort of environment from that assumption now, and people just kind of, oh, yeah, I'll leave there and I'll go next door. Um, and so, so part of the challenge that's underneath all of this is to value... Community, like the way that what Jesus says here assumes community ought to be valued. Yeah. Thank you. Any other thoughts, questions? In which case, let me say this. My guess is that we need a lot more conflict in our community. That's my guess. We need a lot more healthy conflict in our community. My suspicion is that the avoidance that is so prevalent in our wider society, which leads to the accumulation of relational grit between us, which results in a distancing from one another because that's the only way that you can handle the grit, that is just too often enacted amongst us. And I'd suggest to you that it's so much easier, especially when we're fearful, scared little people, it's so much easier to just bit by bit, jarring moment by jarring moment, give up on other people. To say in your head if not out loud that's just so and so that's the way they are. Without adding the unspoken thought and I can't summon the love to care enough about them to clean this grit off. I suspect that we need much more conflict. Healthy conflict like Jesus says here. And there's a flip side to it as well which is um, the only way that's going to happen is to recognise that I can do a very great deal to make it really clear to you that I welcome you coming to me in Matthew eighteen fifteen style, or I really don't welcome you coming to me in Matthew eighteen fifteen style. Um, the more I get that it, you know, it takes a village to raise a child; it takes a church to raise a Christian. I need you to grow up in Christ. I can't do it on my own. I don't have the wisdom. I can't see myself. I need you to do it. And, and hardly any of us do it. Because we're all just a bit too afraid. We're all just too scared. We all pick up the signals from each other that, hey, let's stay friendly. Let's stay nice and sort of polite and distant. Let's not get too messy with all this grit cleaning stuff. Let's just stay distant. And I need you to care enough about me to go beyond that. And actually you do too. And and when we have the strength that comes out of the parable right that comes out of the reality of which the parable speaks the forgiveness of our sins when we have the spiritual strength to say yes I want it's going to hurt it's not going to be fun I, you know the conversations they're hard andrew i've got a bone to pick with you it's not it's not fun but it's good it's deep rich real growth And as we communicate that more to each other and as then on the other side we have the strength and capacity to go like Jesus says to go, there'll be a lot more healthy conflict around. And some of it will go hard and some of it will be a bit pear-shaped and it'll be more mess. But that's okay because it'll be cleaning. The grit will be going. And we'll more and more be the community that Jesus Christ has called us to be. Amen.